Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Welcome back to another episode of Ohio Politics Explained, the no tweeting after sundown edition. This week, we're explaining what householders conviction says about Donald Trump's latest indictment, whether we might see a redistricting amendment in 2024, how marijuana making the ballot might impact the November abortion vote, and what will be different about this school year. Joining me in studio for her Oak debut is our amazing and talented summer intern, Lily Carey. Hi, lovely to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. But before we get into her debut, I just want to take a quick second and ask you to consider leaving us a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to Oak. It helps us share what we do, and I super appreciate it. So our first topic is Georgia's indictment of former President Donald Trump. He's facing election fraud charges, but the way the Peach State prosecutor is making her case might sound familiar to folks here in Ohio. Fannie Willis is using her state's RICO Act. It's a provision that at the federal level was created to charge mafia crime bosses, basically accusing them of conspiring to commit crimes, even if they weren't the person who committed it. So like you might think of the quintessential mob boss ordering a hit as being a case where someone might face a RICO charge. But it's been used for other kinds of conspiracies in recent years, notably political ones. Using RICO to prosecute public corruption is still relatively rare, which is why Ohio's recent conviction of former House Speaker Larry Householder is so interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. The other interesting thing that I've found about the whole like RICO prosecuting thing is just the fact that, you know, the Householder case took a really long time to prosecute. I think that he was arrested in 2020 and obviously didn't get sentenced until 2023. And it's a relatively new sort of strategy. So it'll be interesting to see how the timeline plays out with the Trump indictment. Yeah, it was three years from Mm -hmm. arrest to conviction. Yeah. And you know, that could be the timeline that we're looking at because these cases are complicated. Householders trial lasted six weeks Mm -hmm. because it's also it's to lay out the political conspiracy, put all the players. Well, also in the householder case, they had to teach them about like public utilities law, which (laughs) is a whole other thing. I think election fraud is a more straightforward accusation, right? Mm -hmm. Like than manipulating rate payers. Right. Yeah. But it also seems like there are a lot of moving parts with the Trump case as well. A lot of different players involved. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it could be a window. Like, the householder trial is like a window into the kind of case Trump and his allies might face, like, when, in closing arguments, when the U.S. attorney was making the case against householder. What he said was, Mr. Householder did not act alone, but he was at the top. He benefited the most because the enterprise was set up to benefit his political machine. That was sort of the closing argument of the prosecution. And I would think in a Trump trial, you would see a similar argument, right? Like Mm -hmm. he was the one who was going to benefit most from changing the Georgia election results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it'll be interesting to see how those arguments go. I mean, given how influential the whole election fraud scheme ended up being to just the way that discussions of election security have played out nationally over the past few years. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be one to watch. Yeah. (laughs) But you're right. It could be years before we actually get to Mm -hmm. that point. Yeah. 
Our second topic is one that Lily had been covering for us here, and it's cannabis. So Ohio voters are going to decide this November whether they want to legalize recreational marijuana for adults 21 or older. The folks to regulate marijuana like alcohol got over the final threshold this week, and they are clear for the November ballot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very exciting. I mean, I know it's been a long road for them to get here. Um, originally, they had to submit a large number of signatures to get on the ballot, and they were actually only like 700 signatures. short of hundreds of thousands, which I thought was a comically small number. So yeah, I covered it when they had those signatures come in and obviously they had to get back out and go get those additional signatures, which was definitely a longer process, but it seems like people really showed up for it. So it'll be interesting to see, I guess, the voter base that this draws for the November election, because it's already shaping up to be a pretty contentious one with um, the abortion amendment. Yeah, that was one of the things we're starting to sort of game out here on the team, because when you look at the crosstabs on any poll on marijuana, um, as you get younger in age, the approval for legal cannabis goes up. Right. Like you look at 30 and younger, 25 and younger, you get numbers of approval over 70 percent. And it's not until you get into like 65 and older that you get a majority disapprove of legalizing marijuana. That's I think that's how it broke down even on our Suffolk University poll. So arguably, young people will be crucial to the yes campaign and they're probably going to work hard to get them out. I imagine we'll see a lot of like get out the vote drives on college campuses across the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I have this question of like young voters are always those folks that it's very wishy whether they come out in elections, particularly off-year elections. But if they come out for marijuana, does that help the abortion measure? Because people under 30 also tend to be more Mm pro-choice. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, something interesting as well is that in those Suffolk polls, I think support for legalizing marijuana and support for the abortion amendment, we're polling around the same numbers, like 57 and 58%. So I guess I'm curious to see like how much overlap there is in voters, like when it gets to election day, like, is that proportion going to be the same? Are the same people supporting yeah. both of those things? And they had similar crosstabs, too, that mm-hmm. like support. I mean, abortion is more split by political party, which yeah. makes sense. But they had that similar crosstab of like increasing support as the age demographic gets younger. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I think it's going to be it's going to be inexpensive <laughs> and like. I don't know. I'm just not looking forward to the TV ads. Like, I'm looking forward to yeah. the guys coming back on television and getting to watch them play. Mm-hmm. Oh, my god, It's going to be something. I can imagine. Yeah. Our third topic is a fan favorite here on Oak. It's redistricting. <laughs> the proposed constitutional amendment was submitted to the Ohio Attorney General's office on Monday for language review, and it would essentially scrap the redistricting commission. That's that seven-man member group of lawmakers who drew the maps for the House and Senate last year. It's dominated by Republicans because because Republicans dominate the governor's office, the legislature, the secretary of state. Like these are people who make up that commission. And there was a lot. I mean, if you followed redistricting at all last year, you know that the maps went to the courts multiple times. They got rejected multiple times. There was all these accusations of gerrymandering and unfairness. And it just it was a hot mess. I think even like the folks who like I think everybody was just like this did not work as we had hoped it would work when we voted a couple years ago to change how we did redistricting. 
So, you know, former Ohio Supreme Court Justice Maureen O'Connor is like, hey, let's, you know what, let's create a 15-member commission of Democrats, Republicans, and independents from across the state. Let's make sure that they can't be lawmakers or lobbyists. Like, it's got all these, like, rules about, like, how long before or after you are on the committee could you run for office and stuff like that. And I don't know, I think we might be talking about redistricting not only is, like, literally redrawing the lines again this fall, but possibly voting to change how we do the process again next fall. Yeah. I mean, those rules that you brought up are really interesting. I mean, they were very comprehensive. Like, you can't be a political donor. You can't be a lobbyist. You can't be an elected official. Oh, Maureen thought of, like, everything. (laughs) Yeah, literally everything, I think, was covered. So really trying to keep it separate, which, I mean, could be a positive thing if they're looking for a more, um, you know, partisan redistricting process. Um, But I guess my question is, like, who is going to be on this committee. Yeah. So I think, you know, getting registered Republicans and Democrats, it's pretty straightforward. I think the question that always comes is what's an independent? How do you define them? Because like unaffiliated voters are fascinating to me. So like I used to live in Colorado and the majority of voters there are unaffiliated, but Colorado is now arguably a blue state. So a lot of those voters probably swing more Democratic, even though they're registered unaffiliated. Same thing happens in Ohio. We've got a decent chunk of registered unaffiliated voters, but they definitely, that doesn't mean that you don't have have a party that you vote for. It just means you don't vote in the primary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, even when I was talking to voters about issue one, I got a lot of, you know, people who were maybe registered Republicans voting no, registered Democrats voting yes, or like independents who were like really unsure. I think that's an issue definitely where there was like more overlap. But um, that was definitely an interesting look, um, I guess, for me personally, like a first look into like how blurry the lines really can be like in Ohio with all of that. But yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the makeup of that commission ends up being like. But first, they got to pass it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess first thing, Mm. actually, first, I got to get the signatures to get on the ballot. Then they got to get it through the campaign. The whole cycle again. (laughs) Yeah. So our fourth and final topic is back to school. My Mm -hmm. girls went back to their elementary school this week. And so I wrote an article for parents like me, sort of laying out all the different legal changes lawmakers have made. So, for example, if your kids get used to get reduced lunches, if they qualified for reduced, they now just get a free lunch. So there's no reduced. It's just free lunch or you pay for lunch. So they just kind of expanded free lunch. Uh, Universal voucher. um, It's such a weird quirk of the law. It doesn't technically go into effect until October, but you can apply now and still get the full year's worth, if that makes sense. Like, theoretically, there's people who don't qualify today, but who can apply and get that for the full school year, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those, like, yes, it doesn't technically take effect until October, but you can do it now. And if you have a kindergartner through third grader, they're going to get screened for dyslexia. It's part of the new literacy program. If they, like, pop on this test, it's only, like, five minutes. And it doesn't mean that your kid is dyslexic. It just means that they may have certain signs, because I didn't realize this, but dyslexia is a spectrum. So your kid just may need a little extra intervention and may not actually ever get a like dis- diagnosis of dyslexia. It just means they're going to get in- additional screening, additional interventions. If that makes sense, it's just a way of screening for who might need a little extra help learning to read or who might actually be dyslexic. But yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about all the different ways that um, we change how we educate kids. And I just thought it would be interesting for parents. Yeah, no, definitely. I actually didn't know that about dyslexia. So that'll be Neither interesting. I. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something else I've been covering since the whole election chaos has ended. I've done a few stories about like COVID and like vaccine availability. And it seems like there's going to be new programs or a big push, I guess, by like state public health officials to get kids vaccinated on their hmm. way back into school, which is definitely something else interesting 
interesting to follow. Oh, I will say, actually, one of the most interesting things about back to school is a couple weeks afterwards, like everybody gets sick. You go back to school and like everybody gets sick. It's just mm-hmm. one of those things. Um, it's particularly unfortunate. And one more thing before you go. If you've driven on I-71 between Columbus and Cincinnati, you've probably seen the billboard proclaiming hell is real. And this week we published a story about the man behind the sign. He's a Kentucky developer named Jimmy Hurston, who says he heard the Lord speak to him about 40 years ago and started putting up signs. The first one was actually near his home in Scottsville, Kentucky, and it read, if you died today, where would you spend eternity? And his project grew from there. He started putting up signs in different highways, in different states. He says there's probably about 35 of them, and Hell is Real went up in 2004, and it's become such a landmark that it has its own GPS coordinates. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've heard plenty about the Hell is Real. I mean, this summer has been my first time coming to Ohio, and I feel like that's probably the Have you seen it? I don't know if I've seen it in person. I haven't really done the Columbus to Cincinnati thing yet, (laughs) but that was like the one thing that everyone was like, oh, this is what Ohio is known for. So it's cool to see like how much, you know, more there is behind that landmark. Uh, Yeah, we have a lot of like quirky roadside attractions. Like, have you seen the Longenberger basket? No, okay, I've so heard about it, it. Yeah, it's like a giant like building shaped like a basket, like a picnic basket. Because yeah. Longenberger makes these baskets and it's like the whole building is shaped like a basket, mm-hmm. which is like crazy. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess Hell is Real is up there with the Longenberger basket. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard I've heard a little bit about the, the Longenberger basket, but... Yeah, lots of lots of roadside stuff. Grandpa's definitely... cheese barn. Oh, oh my gosh. You're telling me all the, the spots others. I have to hit. <laughs> yeah. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we've covered, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like the Kent Record Courier. That's record-courier.com. 